Good morning. My name is Anders Carlson. Our second reading is from the letter of 1 John, chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For these are three that testify. There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is a testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Sorry, that's on me. Let's pray. Dear God, we again uh, lift that word hallelujah to praise the Lord. Praise you for watching over us and providing for us and taking care of us the last week and this morning and this day. We come to praise you and because we want to learn from you and we want to gather together and be your people, we again ask you to give us uh, insight and understanding for how these sacred and holy words, which have been so uh, guarded and stewarded to be handed down to us from 1 John, that we might understand what they meant to him and what they mean to us. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, good, again, good morning. My name is Dean Miller, and I'm on staff here and super glad to be with you as we are almost to the end of summer. Like you can feel the crazy, you can see even in the hallways, those of you who call this your church home, like the file cabinets that were in some of the hallways the last couple weeks are slowly being migrated back to classes. There's a little less accoutrement in the hallways. And I want you to ask this question for a second. What is, when you, when you see something, what helps you know it's authentic or real, right? Someone who's committed to something. In our, in our house, sometimes we'll say what, you know, that person, that actor is like all in for the bit. Like there's certain actors that you know, if they're on screen, you kind of can't not watch them because you know they're all in, right? Like Edward Norton is an actor, it's freaky because you just, you know he's all in. Whatever's gonna happen, it's gonna be him just consuming the screen. What's it mean to be authentic? Um, this summer, one of my regular joys and highlights has been a morning walk with my oldest son, Corwin, and our dog. So most mornings, most weekday mornings, Corwin and I have got up early in the morning and taken a long walk through our neighborhood in Falls Church. We've created a route that we do basically every day, has some hills, some downhills around, and he and I talk. We talk a lot of Premier League soccer, which just started Friday. For those of you who've marked your liturgical calendar by the Premier League, some of us are grieving already this morning. Um, we talk about politics, other stuff. We note what's happening in the neighborhood, because by now we've been doing it since late May, when he came home, and so we've seen yards at work mode, now our mode, where the deer were, where we saw foxes and the dog wanted to get them, 
who's doing a reno, where's the dumpster been moved, stuff like that. And then in early June, we walked by a house where it was clear, one of those big early storms, lightning had hit a huge tree in the front yard, probably a tree, you know, five, six feet around and snapped it in half. Missed the house. But so over the summer, we've watched as like the tree got cut down and then of course there's all the logs in the driveway. And we're like, okay, that's kind of cool. And then, oh, the logs are stacked, so then they keep the logs. But then they kept... They didn't, they didn't grind the stump down here. They kept about a 12-foot high piece of the stump. And you're like, okay, that's weird. But again, we walk them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You begin to see, okay, now it looks like this thing is being shaped. And we've got some neighbors, other parts of our neighborhood where, you know, occasionally we, a couple years ago we had a huge Native American head carved into a tree, sort of like a totem pole, but just the head. Another neighbor, big artist, had a huge um, eagle, right? Totally different part of our neighborhood. So we're like, well, this is kind of, I, so initially you think this is going to be a Native American head. That's what's starting to shape it. So we're like, oh, that's kind of neat. And then it begins to take real shape. It's clearly being like someone's bringing a chainsaw out. It's being shaped, lacquered. Someone is all in, authentically all in on the bit on this tree. It's going to be something. So after a while, my son and I go by and I go, that's a Spartan head. It's a huge Spartan head. Thank you. We'll pray for whoever is clapping later. So if you know anything, you know, A, maybe it's just they love ancient you know, Greco-Roman history, but predictably instead, this is a, an alum from Michigan State University. And what this family had done is carve a huge Spartan head on the tree in their front yard. It's actually not facing even the street, which would seem cooler. It's just facing off into the trees like it's waiting for the attack from Troy to come and it's going to be ready. And as my son and I began to notice this part, now we began to notice, oh, this is a white house with bright green shutters. And a, and a, a Buick, in a, a new Buick in a green color that I don't think is off the lot and with an MSU license plate. And she realized, okay, this is a Michigan State Spartan alum. They are, they are authentically all in on the bit, right? Like, you, I, you don't, I bet in your neighborhood there's not a carved Cavalier or a carved Hokie or a carved George Bull, or Hoya Bulldog anywhere. But in my neighborhood, this guy has decided to say, this is what marks me. This is what's important. Clearly, his wife was out of town when he started to shape this. <laughs> and he's basically saying, I, I don't make good choices, and I'm making a Spartan in my front yard, right? But a week or two ago, my son and I were both like, you know, there, we do respect the, the like, whole hit sale all in. Because it's, it's sure, like he has a maroon car and you once woke up and go, just sell the car, get a green one. There's no reason. It kills the whole theme. It's clear you are authentically an MSU Spartan alum. I hope he ends up in a magazine for their alumni development part at some point in time. Authentic. What's it mean to be authentic? How do you trust it? You could trust this guy if you went to him and said, what's Michigan State like? This week, many of you are headed back or taking kids to college. How many of you are headed back to school or taking a son or daughter to college in the next some of you are painfully putting your name in. I'm, I don't like it any more than you do, I assure you. I have two sons leaving for college in the next couple of weeks. And over the last few weeks, I've been in conversations with some collegians about how do I find a church or a fellowship when I go to college? How do I find a community that I can trust that's, again, authentic or real? And I've spent decades working with and having those kinds of conversations with college-age men and women. And as I think about that question, I think it would be really great if I never had to have that conversation. If I could say to, some, to any student, anybody a part of our church and other, like, 
You could go to any college town in America and if there's a church there, you can trust it because it's fully authentically following Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if you never had to answer the question, how do you find the right church or a great church or college fellowship? Because all there were were great churches that were authentically, really loving Jesus. Because college is frankly hard enough, right? Leaving home, learning self-discipline, eating too much pizza, intramurals, midterms, sorting through a major and a job-focused dating. College is hard enough without realizing, oh, I have to be thoughtful about what church. It's not like any church here I can trust. Wouldn't it be great if any church in any town, not just a college town, could be trusted to be a real, orthodox, authentic church? Somebody fully in, like a Michigan State Spartan on your lawn. And to determine that as a college student and to determine that here in Vienna or another town, it does beg that question. What is authentic real life as a Christian? What's it look like to really be the church? Not to own a building, but to be the living, breathing people of God sent by Jesus into the world. And it might be a little bit long, a false longing to think, well, gosh, it's too bad that we have to ask that question because I bet people down through church history never had to do that. But that question, what's it mean to be full of real authentic life in Jesus and to follow him, and our desire for a powerful, trustworthy answer is what has underpinned our whole summer in the book of 1 John. We've been studying 1 John since mid-June. And what John is trying to communicate to the, that church, which is in the first century, just a few decades after Jesus' death, in now modern-day Turkey and ancient Ephesus, is to answer the questions and to point his to people to say, find an authentic church. This is your church home. He's in essence carving a Spartan head into his yard to say, this is what it looks like to be fully the people of God. And he's having to do that because he and his people have been confronted by a false, inauthentic Christianity. And we've talked about this this summer. False Christianity stressing arrogance and elitism toward other Christians. A false Christianity calling question on Jesus' divinity and humanity. False Christianity teaching God was removed and unconcerned and uncommitted to his creation. False Christianity teaching that real, authentic Christians don't concern themselves with life on earth and don't even really sin. And we've seen for two months how John the Apostle has pushed back on that heretical movement again and again, what the scholars call the secessionists, people who are saying, we are the real church, Come here, you'll find authentic life in Jesus. And John is saying, no, no, no. He's been saying to us, no, these are the markers. This is the church. This is what should stand out. Again, this is the Spartan head in your yard of what it would look like to follow Jesus. Hold fast authentically to Jesus. And he's been doing it in what we've often called as a song, in contrast to Paul's more legal arguments in his letters. John's been singing this song again and again over us. This is what it looks like. And I bet many of you, if I were to, if you've been here more than two or three weeks and we were to say, what do you think the main themes of that song are? You could probably tell us at least a few because he's come back to it again and again. Johnny and I were laughing a bit this morning because the sermon Johnny preached last week on John 4 would have been faithful to the sermon I preached several weeks ago to a sermon on John 2 because of the same words about propitiation, God's deep love for us, how that love is supposed to change us into who we're supposed to be, we're almost identical in chapter two and chapter four. So what I wanna do this morning is just continue that chorus simply and to summarize again for us 
what John's been saying. My hope is that this becomes a song stuck in your head. Think of that song that gets stuck in your head. Some of you might have a song you wish wasn't stuck in your head, right? I thought about humming one this morning that would drive you crazy. I decided not to do that. But what's that song that you want to return to? That's what we want to do. And I want to leave you with this song to, again, guide you. What does it mean to be authentically loving and following Jesus? It'd be worth stressing this morning how much God loves us or how much he is ready to forgive us, which John has beat a drum on for the last two months. But again, I just want to touch on two major themes. What's it mean to be authentic Christian? What's real? What can I trust? Who can I trust? What church or friend or person or book or article or podcast? What lenses do I use to understand what I can trust? First, very simply, Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah. John has been stating and restating and teaching and illustrating this point since chapter 1. From back to the first week, we saw he was stressing, no, no, Jesus was not just a, a phantom with no physical corporal presence. Again, this is a man who lived for three years with Jesus, saw him eat, saw him sleep. He's saying Jesus is not some, some special man who got a covering, some heavenly covering when he was baptized and it stayed on until right before he was crucified. Again, these are some of the, the heresies that have been taught to the, church of, the, the, the people in John's church. He's trying to communicate and clear up some of the errors that are in front of them. Jesus is not just a, a great guy or a great teacher, someone really nice. No, John is saying this is the Jesus who was there at creation in Genesis 1. He was there at the Jordan to be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit in a, as a dove. He was in the upper room with John and the other disciples. He was on the cross when he was crucified and he stepped out of an empty tomb. This Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, Messiah, is the physical representation of just how much God loves you. The physical representation of just how much God loves you. And, and if he were to come through here in his resurrected body, like he does in the latter part of the Gospels, the first thing you and I would all do is bend our knee and then bow our heads and try to get our breath back. It would be breathtaking. We would bend our knee, we would bow our heads and struggle for breath. When you read the Gospels, what Jesus always says when he sees people for the first time after his resurrection is, do not be afraid. He's not just some loving man. He's not a squishy person. He's majestic and divine and yet utterly committed to you. This is a quote by a theologian named Alfred Plummer. To believe that Jesus is the Christ, which is what John is inviting you to do, is to believe that he who was born and was crucified is the anointed, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world. To believe this is to accept both the Old and the New Testaments. It's to believe that Jesus is what he claimed to be, one who is equal with the Father, and as such demands of every believer the absolute surrender of self to him. So do we want to be authentic, real, all-in-on-the-bit Christians? Do we want to know real life in Jesus, want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven at work, want to see the excitement of Jesus transforming people's lives, be drafted into eternity ourselves? Then we believe, we believe, we believe in this Jesus as Savior, Lord, Ruler, Alpha, and Omega. We put our whole trust into him. This 
is John's first chorus. He's been singing it again since chapter one. And he's singing it against people who are saying, no, that's not who Jesus is. Just like you and I face every day. Second, I bet you could guess this one too. To be fully in, to be fully a part of Jesus's family, to be faithful to and authentic to who Jesus was, we're to love one another, love one another, love one another. So many times John has touched on this in this book. Here's just a few. Chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 14. And 15. Chapter 3, verse 23. Chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 2. I think he's trying to make a point. If you went home today... If you're a child here and you went home and your mom asked you over and over again to pick up your shoes and clean your room and to pick up your shoes and clean your room and to pick up your shoes and to clean your room. And I asked you, hey, what was your mom trying to get you to do today? What would you say? She really wants me to pick up my shoes and clean my room. These churches, these false churches and communities are marked by arrogance and antipathy towards one another. This elitism, this push away not to love each other. But what John's saying is real, authentic Christians love one another just like Jesus loved us. Not because they necessarily feel that way, but because they develop muscles to live that way. Jesus trained muscles. We see it in chapter four. This is love, God sending his son to die for us before we responded. The Christians aren't loving one another because they're already developed this, oh, you've loved me, so I'm gonna love you. The way Jesus loved is I'm gonna love you because God chose to love you and I'm gonna pursue loving you even if I don't feel it or you haven't chosen to love me in return. Even if you're unworthy, even if you're enemies. Again, remember this, John first heard this in the upper room as the disciples sat around the table with Jesus and when they were initially called, there were people there who were enemies. Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector weren't just not friends with each other, they were enemies. And it might be easier to sit there this morning and say, well, Dean, it was clearly easier then for Christians to love each other than now. Christians then didn't have the internet. Christians then couldn't go on Instagram. Christians then must have spoke the same language. Christians then probably didn't have racism. I'm sure they didn't have political intrigue or polarization, leaders they trusted or didn't trust. Probably didn't have nationalism. They probably valued men and women and children then. I bet all the Christians in were vegan or vegetarian or carb-free or only ate locally sourced food. I bet they all drove hybrids or they all drove trucks. I bet they all went to UVA or they all went to Tech. They all voted Democrat or they all voted Republican. They all went to Madison or they all went to Dominion or they all went to Lorian Wood or they all went to Oakton. Now, the deep theological term for that fantasy is baloney. And that's the kind way to say it. It'd be false to consider that loving one another then was any easier and that they lived in a world less polarized. Rome was a polarized place. The reason they're all together is because they were conquered and thrown together from all over the Roman Empire. There's no way they spoke the same language, wore the same clothes. For sure, they didn't grow up worshiping the same gods. Different ethnicities, different socioeconomic realities. Shoot, they're in Ephesus. John is writing an encyclical, right, that's going to go around, but it's starting in Ephesus. 
That's a capital city like Washington, D.C., along a major trade route like New York. Think of the conglomeration of people in those cities here for us. The idol there is the idol here, power. And they all want to get it. And Jesus and John are calling them to worship an idol, or not worship an idol, worship Jesus in a way that calls them to set down their idols and love people utterly different than them. One way you can see this is in all the other New Testament letters that Paul starts with, grace and peace to you. That's code. He's saying greetings to the Jew and greetings to the Gentile. Matter of fact, this morning in the opening reading for morning prayer, it's Philippians 1-2, and it starts grace and peace. It was no easier for them to love one another than it is for you and me. And yet Jesus in the upper room said to John and the 12, love one another. This is the way people will know you follow me if you love one another. If we want to be authentically Jesus' people in the world, we have to love one another. It was so important to John that there's an, an older anecdote for John as he got so old he couldn't walk and couldn't really speak or teach in the church in Ephesus is that they would carry him in on a pallet and he would look at the church and just repeat again and again, little children, my children love one another. Love one another. I bet because you've heard Johnny and I preach bunches of times, you could give us what you think our five or six life sermons are. You could mail those in. Email Johnny and I. I bet this is it. Love one another is John the Apostle's life sermon. People are literally to know what being a Christian means because how you and I love each other, especially because we're different. These are so important to John. Believe and love, truth and love. Jesus was full of grace and truth. That's John 1. But it's not just John. These two things that make us authentically real, these Spartan heads in our yard that mark us as Christians. Look at this slide briefly. You heard the Colossians passage from Paul. This is Col Colossians 1, 3, and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, your belief, and of the love that you have for all the saints. This is Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I won't do 1 Thessalonians, but I bet it says the same thing. And then Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 1, 8. Peter, Paul, and John. It's a pretty great company, right? That's, those, that's a good dinner. Sitting around the table, that old question, who would you invite to dinner? Ask those three to dinner and say, what does it mean to be authentically real, to, for people to know I'm marked by Jesus, that I'm all in on the bit? And they would say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and love one another the way Jesus has loved us. The implications of these two amazing pieces of theology are pretty clear. First, you and I are saved. Jesus is the Savior, that quote from Alfred Plummer. I opened worship this morning talking about the beauty of God bringing order to chaos, the chaos we are surrounded by. There has been a death to bring order to that chaos. You and I are saved. You need not fear. 
you and I are not alone. You have a new family. Look around. This is your new family. They might look weird. You might not know them all. You might not know their names. You are not alone. You have a new family. A little sidebar mini sermon. If you're going to college and you want to be a part of a family, I'd encourage you to try the churches and ministries on campus for a month and then choose your family. Be committed. Be committed. Make a choice. You'll be deeper and better for it. Give four to six weeks. For those of you who are adults, be committed. Choose your family. You will be deeper and richer for choosing to be a part of a Christian family. Maybe this church isn't the one you choose. But if you do, great. But choose it and invest in it and be in it. How are you going to love one another if you're not a part of one another? And again... Jesus is the way. Nothing and no one else else will bring you the satisfaction and the joy and the life you and I are intended to have other than Jesus. Paul's going to die for it. Peter's going to die for it. John's probably the only apostle who lived in old age because the others were martyred for it. Want to find an authentic Christian church or community or fellowship or small group? Want to be an authentic Christian church, community, fellowship, or small group? Then it will start with you and me how we hold fast, how tightly we hold fast to Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, and how deeply we love one another. Wouldn't it be amazing that if people asked about you, what marks you, not your front yard, but you, if they said, well, I don't know much about them at work or your neighborhood or maybe even at a family dinner, but I do know that they believe in Jesus and they sure love others. I know they believe in Jesus and I know they love others. Those would be the marks John would want for you and for me. So before I pray, just a a quick, simple application for this. We don't often have simple, you can do it this week applications. You could do it today. We, over the next 10 days or so, are having barbecues as a church around the church. And the, the intent of those is just to build community. Again, how will we love one another if we don't know one another? And if you're not signed up for one of those, Johnny's gonna give an announcement about it later. I'd encourage you just to sign up. We'd love those to be full. D.C. is a lonely city. We've talked before how this is often called the loneliest city in America. Woo, we're number one, right? But you know what God did? God sent you and I to dispel that loneliness in his community and his people. And a simple way to do that would be to make sure you're a part of a barbecue. If not, and you can't make one of those, I'll be at the Vienna Inn next Saturday morning at 8.30 for whoever wants to come and join me for breakfast. How many of you ever eat breakfast? What a simple way to honor Jesus. I'm telling you to go to a barbecue and eat and come get breakfast at the Vienna Inn. You'll you'll never get a simpler application of scripture than that. Let's pray. Dear God, all joking aside, thank you for the utter seriousness with which John wrote this letter. He was imprisoned for being a godly man talking of Jesus in that city, he's writing on the back end of that imprisonment, we believe, and yet he is still boldly saying, you are the way, the truth, the life, you alone are the Alpha and Omega, you alone are worthy of all praise, you alone are worthy of our trust, and then you will change us to be a loving family. We ask for your help to do that. You've placed us here in Vienna and Northern Virginia and Oakton and Reston and other places to to look like your people, and we pray you would help us do that. We pray particularly, Lord, again, for those of us who struggle with loneliness. 
This is a lonely place and can be a lonely place because of the pace, people moving in and out, the demands we feel. You made us to be known by you and known by others. And we pray that this community would be an extended family full of the gospel of good news and where people would be known. Not just by us, but by you. In your holy name, amen. You are-